Well, good morning. Happy Lord's Day, everyone. Welcome to those who are uh, joining us for the first time, for those who have been um, attending quite a while. Uh, I am Pastor Abbott, the pastor and church planter of Cornerstone Reform Church, Makati. And uh, as we have started this year, we have been going through the first book of the Bible. And you would think that by second month of the year, we have already covered a lot, but we're actually just on Genesis 3 right now. So uh, last week, we studied the first part uh, of Genesis. And so if you notice what uh, Pean read to us is only the second half of Genesis 3 because we tackled last week the first part, Genesis 1 to 3. And I mentioned that this is one sermon divided into two because if I preached the whole Genesis 3 last week, we, have been, we will be continuing on till today. <laughs> uh, I will not stop. So, uh, of course, the, the text Genesis 1 to 3 last week stands on its own. Uh, what we will study today stands in, on its own as well. But it will be better to see them together because what we will see is how, you know, how uh, things ha have fallen apart. And like I said, you know, if you have headings in your Bibles, you will see the heading there, the fall of, of man or fall of humanity. And uh, last week, we uncovered uh, an answer to the question, what is wrong with the world? And it traces all the way back to Genesis 3. Uh, here in our text, we talked about the cause of the fall. And there are two causes of the fall. There's an internal uh, cause. The, the inclination of Adam and Eve to, to disobey God, but there's also an external cause, and that is the, the temptation of, of the serpent. We also talked about the consequence of the fall. Uh, we saw that how, how physical death became a certainty, right? So I'm just reviewing yung uh, ating uh, sermon last week. There's certainty of death, so when God said, you will surely die, uh, you notice, hindi naman sila immediately natigok, di ba? But it, it just means that, you know, death become, became certainty in the life of uh, God's image bearers. But what we also saw was they were hiding, they were ashamed, they were blaming one another. It's, it indicated a much more, much deeper kind of death, and that is spiritual death. And we also saw how in their sinful state, and this is the beauty of that first part, God still called out Adam and Eve. He searched them, like reminding us that God is the one that seeks and saves that which was lost. And today we will finish the second half of uh, this chapter, and we will look at how God acts in the midst of humanity's uh, fallenness. If you are feeling, you know, if you're listening to the sermon or if you've listened to the uh, previous sermon, if you feel the heaviness of the, the sermon, that's by design. You, we ought to feel the weight of our sin. We ought to feel how this problem is such a big deal, right? And, and, and I assure you, as we go through this text, there's still good news. It's not like, you know, I'm just bombarding you with guilt and everything, it's, uh, we, all of this goes back to the grace of God. And, and here's the, the big idea of, of what we're going to study today. 
we will see that in the fall of Adam and Eve, God righteously pronounces judgment to deal with their sin. And keep in mind what God pronounces, it becomes reality, right? We saw that in Genesis 1. When God says something, it's true. There's no, you know, there's no negotiation happening. So when God pronounces judgment to deal with their sin, it's a reality. But with this judgment, within this judgment, we will also see that God also graciously provides a solution that ultimately deals with their sin. Essentially, we see the gospel in the first few chapters already of the Bible. It's not just in the New Testament. We see it here. And I quoted this, uh, uh, I quoted Mark Jones in his book, and this is, I will repeat it again today because this is true and we will see this uh, fleshed out uh, in this text. Mark Jones said in his book, Knowing Sin, some of the great displays of both God's character and his grace are revealed in the context of sin. His character, of, uh, his character and his grace are revealed in the context of sin. And we see that as God brings judgment to the fall of humanity, and we see that as God provides a solution for the fall of man. And that's our uh, outline today as you want to look into our text. Again, uh, if you are looking for you know, keywords, number one, the judgment to the fall, and number two, the solution to the fall. Let's break them down uh, right now. So what is the God's judgment to the fall? Well, what we see in the text is that God pronounces a judgment. Actually, the word used is curse. God is the one cursing. And I will explain why that is important in a bit. God is pronouncing a curse to his creation. First to the serpent, then to the woman, then to Adam. All parties involved in sin. Remember how in the moment of the fall and in their rebellion, they were pointing at each other. The, the man says, you know, the woman that you gave me, uh, gave me the fruit. The woman said, well, the serpent deceived me. So they were pointing each other, but you know, I, I, they were doing that hoping that God would just punish someone else. Right? They, sometimes when we sin, we say, well, you know, this uh, the devil made me do it. We're pointing at someone else. But God convicts all of them. God pronouncement, uh, pronounced judgment uh, on all of them. He starts with the serpent. What is the uh, judgment? Uh, let me read again verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And above all of the fields on your belly you shall go, and, that thus, and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. So if you have a zoological, literal understanding of this text, um, we might imagine, you know, a serpent used to be walking on, you know, on, on with, with arms and legs prior to the fall. He's walking upright. Uh, now he lost his limbs. Union curse. And when you look at uh, myths and stories and, 
And even the scripture, a serpent became universally known to depict a crafty and cursed animal to be feared, right? When we look at um, you know, uh, movies and, and, and cartoons, uh, the, the serpent is always you know, the, the evil one. Yun yung image natin. But I, I think there's more to this uh, curse than just you know, uh, the serpent being removed uh, with arms and, and limbs. Yes, no other part of the scripture negates that view. So we can definitely make that assumption that you know, serpents used to have arms and legs. I'm trying to imagine what that looks like. That's <laughs> random. But, but I think the author of Genesis, of course, with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is not so much concerned with the zoological deterioration, so to speak, of an animal. Hindi naman yun yung point of what this curse is all about, I think. I think he's more concerned with the display of the condition of God's enemy. And in this case, the serpent, representing the enemy of God, is cursed, is on his belly for the rest of his life. What that means is that he is not toe-to-toe -to -toe with God. He is not head-to-head -head with God. He is not eye-to-eye -eye with God. They are not of equal status. This enemy, this serpent, will be on his belly for the rest of his life. He will never surpass the one who cursed him. He is on the ground, cursed by God. That's his place. That's the place of the enemy. Not only is he on the ground, he will always be at war. And the word used here in, in some of your translation is enmity. It's not just, you know, conflict. It's war. It's, there's there's um, clashing between parties. I'll read verse 15 and 16 again. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman, he said, God said to this, uh, this to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So God's curse is not just between the serpent and the woman. God's curse is going to be a generational conflict. Damay damay na. Basor, bakit woman lang yung enmity with the serpent? Why is the curse placed upon the serpent and the woman? Well, one, because the serpent deceived the woman. So merong uh, immediate uh, culpability here. But second, the conflict is between the woman and the serpent because as a life giver, the woman, this signifies that this conflict will continue from one offspring to another. It will continue. As, as the woman brings new life into the world, the serpent's offspring will continue to have conflict with that 
offspring. Satan will always attack Eve's descendants. That's the point. He has done so throughout the ages and he has been doing that even today. That's his strategy. To bring down the offspring of Eve. But notice also that the curse that God, and we're moving from the serpent now to the woman, notice also that the curse that God proclaims to the woman involves the two closest relationship she will ever have. One is with her child, the other is with her husband. Notice that? Again, keep in mind, God has designed Eve to bring forth children. Yung Yung blessing to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth, that was designed for Eve to bear children that will experience the goodness of God under the rule of God. Now, this design is cursed with pain. I will multiply your pain. Hindi na yung, I will multiply your offspring. I will multiply your pain in childbearing. So from childbearing to giving birth to raising them, this blessing is now tied with pain. And also remember, God designed Eve to be a suitable partner, an ezer kenegdo, a, a, a complementary helper, someone who will complement Adam to fulfill God's mandate for them to be God's image bearers. Now, this design has been cursed again. And let me quote, you know, uh, the study Bible, global study Bible, uh, with this. It says, the leadership role of the husband and the complementary relationship between husband and wife that were ordained by God before the fall have now been deeply damaged and distorted by sin. No wonder marriage from that point forward is difficult. No wonder family life is painful from that point forward. And that's why, you know, when, we, when I officiate a, a wedding, when, when I see weddings, it's, it's always an encouragement to point them to what God has intended for marriage to be. Because we see how this institution of marriage, the union between one man and one woman, has been distorted because of sin. So from serpent to the woman, woman to, his, to her children and to her husband, and now we go to Adam. This is the curse to Adam. God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten off the tree of which I commanded you that you shall not eat, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and dust you shall return. Again, we know that God designed Adam to be worker, right? And that is good. And we, we, we establish that work in itself 
is God-ordained and it is good. But now, because of sin, we have jobs. <laughs> Work becomes toil. Work is now labor. Work is no longer just good. Work is painful. And also remember how Adam was the gardener of Eden. Now he toils outside Eden. Remember how Adam was supposed to be the guardian of Eden. And now that role was given to someone else, to the cherubim. Remember how Adam was supposed to be the general manager of the garden? And now he is a slave. He is a slave to the soil until he goes back to it. No wonder even work is difficult to find, difficult to maintain, difficult to find happiness. Because it's cursed. Not only did God pronounce a curse to all the parties involved, he also evicted them. He removed them from the garden. Let me skip to 21 to 24. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. What's going on here? Was God so angry that he just wants the worst for Adam and Eve? Is he so, no, is he so insecure of power that he does not want Adam to have the tree of life? Why does he not want Adam and Eve to live forever, right? It's, it looks like that way. When you read it, it's like, you know, God doesn't want Adam and Eve to live forever. Is this an insecure God? Is this a God that's jealous of power? Let me explain. Remember, prior to the fall, Adam and Eve had access to all the trees in the garden, including the tree of life. They were not prevented to eat from the tree of life. Keep that in mind. They were allowed access to the tree of life. The only prohibition in the garden is to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it. But they had access to the other tree, the tree of life. And I imagine, you know, as they have stayed in the garden of Eden prior to the fall, and we don't know how long that is, uh, I would imagine it would be, you know, a significant amount of time. I imagine... Prior to the fall, they have been enjoying and eating from the tree of life. And we don't know, the, the Bible does not really expound what the tree of life uh, really means. But I would, you know, I would, as the name suggests, it's a tree that gives them life. Right? And by our context, it might mean that when they eat from the tree of life, they can live forever. 
this is a tree of immortality. That's what the, the text and the scripture implies. So why would God prevent Adam and Eve to eat from the tree now? Well, because to eat from the tree of life in their sinful state would mean they will live forever in their sinful state. Does that make sense? Now, if they eat from the tree of life when they have rebelled from God, they will live forever as rebels of God. They will live in a sinful state. And so to stay in the garden in their sinful state forever, that would mean an eternity of shame, an eternity of hiding, an eternity of covering themselves with fig leaves, an eternity of blaming one another, an eternity of conflict between husband and wife and their children and the serpent forever. You know what that looks like? The Garden of Eden will not be a place of good for them. It will be a place of torment. You know what that looks like? Hell. The Garden of Eden, when they eat of the tree of life in their sinful, sinful state, will not be paradise. It will be hell. So for God to prevent them from taking of the tree of life is actually an act of grace. God's preventive act to evict them, yes, it's still judgment, is a gracious act of judgment because it prevented the evil to fully consume them for eternity. Imagine if God did not do that, Adam and Eve will have descendants in the garden in their sinful state with conflict between one another for the rest of their lives for eternity. So there will, no, there will never be paradise. There will be eternity of torment. And so God pronounces judgment against them, pronounces a curse, and evicts them from the garden. And as we see, it's an act of grace as well, not just an act of wrath. Here's an important thing to, to keep in mind. You know, these are pronouncements of judgment of God because of their sin. And we are making a distinction between yung consequences of the fall, which we uh, tackled last week. But there are consequences of the fall. And the judgment to the fall, they are related because of sin, but there's a distinction. Ano yung distinction? And this is a difficult statement to accept, and, and this, is, this is true, just the same. So I want you to keep this in mind. The lifelong, the lifelong struggle in this world, our lifelong struggle in this world, because of sin, the cursed life was ordained by God. Let me repeat that. Our lifelong struggle with sin, our cursed life, was ordained by God. 
Don't get me wrong, I am not saying God is the author of evil. We reject that. That's not the point. But God has ordained this judgment because of their sin. That's a lot to take in, right? Especially when we have statements like, you know, if God is so loving, Pastor God is so loving, why would he ordain a lifelong struggle? Why would he punish people so harshly? And there's a lot of things that we can say to that. And, you know, I, I could speak about 30 minutes just for, for that statement. But let me just say a few things very quickly. You know, sometimes when we say, when we allude to God being loving, we actually mean uh, God should be tolerant of, of anything, right? When we say, you know, God is so loving, we, we, we assume that God should just ignore, you know. Ah, okay lang yan. He's like a, a, an old lolo na pinaha, hinahayaan lang yung, yung children to do their own thing. Haya mo na, bata pa naman. But to be tolerant of sin is actually not loving, right? And interestingly, we appeal to God's love when we talk about our sin or, you know, sin revolving uh, around the people we love. But we appeal to God's righteousness and justice when we think of the sin of others, right? As if those are two different things. But when we think about God's divine simplicity, and I will not deal with that, but when we, yeah, when we think of God's wholeness, we cannot separate his justice and love. They go together. God is not 50% love and 50% justice. He is actually, God is love. God is justice. We know love. We experience love because of him. We know justice. We know righteousness because of him. It's not, you know, at one point, God can be loving. At another aspect of uh, God, he is just. They go together. And God must act according to his nature always, right? And so because he is just, because he is righteous and holy, he must punish that which is unjust, unrighteous, and unholy. Friends, God deals with all sinners of all sinners. Of, uh, God deals with all sins of all sinners. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. And it's foolish to think that God ignores our sin because there are bigger sinners to deal with. That he must deal with, you know, the, the criminals, the politicians, you know, those who are in, at war. God will deal with them first and God will allow my small sins. He sees all our sin and he will deal with them accordingly. He did not deal with only the serpent. He did not deal only with, with Adam. He did not only deal with Eve. He did not say, oh, Eve, this is really your fault. I'm excusing Adam. He will deal with all sins of all sinners. And he will do that 
righteously. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. You know, it's critical to see that God is the one pronouncing the curse. He is saying the curse. He is not, he is not you know, delegating the curse to the serpent. It's not the serpent who cursed Adam and Eve. It's God. Do you see that? And it's important to see that because this means that even the fallenness of humanity, it's not beyond the sovereignty of God. That God remains in control in the face of evil. And the ending of the book of Genesis actually summarizes that in the statement of Joseph in Genesis 50, verse 20. When all the evil things happened in Joseph, his summary for all his life, talking to his brothers, is a good summary of what we see how evil is used. What did Joseph say? Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He did not say God turned it for good. It said God meant it for good. That's a powerful statement that God is ordaining evil for his purpose. You know, seen from this perspective, we can look at evil not as an equal and opposite power to God, but merely God's necessary tool to bring out his good purpose. You know, sometimes we have this notion that, you know, God is, you know, the, the Jedi force <laughs> and, and evil is the Sith force and they are opposing one another. When we look at the judgment of God, we see it's not like that. That evil is merely a tool, a necessary tool to bring out his glorious purpose. You know what's happening here? It's an affirmation that God can use Satan's strategy against himself. You know, if you, if you are familiar with the Chronicles of Nar Narnia, it, this captures this powerfully, right? The white witch thought that killing Aslan would finally give her victory, and they celebrated that. You know, if you saw the movie, that was a chilling scene when the white witch was celebrating the death of Aslan. That was her strategy. But you know what? It is through Aslan's death that gave them the victory and even the defeat of the white witch. It's using the strategy of the enemy against himself. You know, this is, I'm, I know this is a lot to take in, but you know, let me distill this into some actionable items. When we think about God's righteous judgment to our fallenness, it should cause us to take sin seriously because God takes sin seriously, right? We take sin seriously. Number two, 
this should also cause us to hope in God's sovereignty. Because as an act of His benevolence and grace, as we see in, in Genesis 3, He will not let evil have the final word over His children. Do you see that? He did not just say, now that you have sinned, I'm done with you, serpent, do as you please. The serpent did not have the last word in Genesis 3. It's God. And because God has the last word, he provides a solution to the fall. And this leads us to our second point. What is the solution to the fall? The solution in one word, the gospel. The gospel in this text was promised and the gospel in this text was displayed. Let me explain. How was the good news promise? Let me read again verse 15. I will put hostility between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring, and in, other, in your other translation, your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and he will strike his heel. Do you notice that? It says he, not they. God was referring not to a general pool of descendants, but a specific one. The text is referring to a specific offspring, a promised seed that will strike, meaning crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent will also injure, strike the heel in the process. God is making, so to speak, a prophetic statement of this particular offspring. And who is this offspring? Well, Adam and Eve heard this and thought, well, wow, God is making a way out of our misery, not from us, but through our offspring. So I'm, I, they were praying, they were hoping that when they have an offspring, that he is the one. So as they experience the judgment of God, they place their hope in their seed. They hope that it was Abel, and we will see next Sunday uh, how that you know, went on. They hope that it was Abel, but Cain killed him. And so Seth took his place. Perhaps it would be Seth, right? Or perhaps it was the son of Seth, Enosh. And then, they, and then came genealogies in our Bible. Do you notice our Bible is peppered with genealogies? Or do you skip that part? <laughs> Genesis 5 is full of analogy, uh, genealogies. Genesis 10, Genesis 11... Genesis 12 onwards talks about the family of Abraham. In Kings and Chronicles, it, it traces the line of the rulers of Israel. In Ezra and Nehemiah, genealogies were there to trace the return of God's people from exile, full of genealogies. We can't pronounce their names, right? You know, in your Bible reading plan, genealogies was, you know, is, is part of the Bible that you skip. Or just you read mindlessly, right? 
So and so begat so and so and so. We skip that part. But not for Israelites. Not for them. They look at the names very carefully. They look closely to the genealogies, not just to see their family history, but to identify the promised seed. They were looking, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? And do you notice the last genealogy that we see in the Bible stops with Jesus? There's nothing else. It stops with Jesus. It's as if the Bible is telling us the search is over. Matthew's gospel traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Abraham. But you know what? In the gospel of Luke, the genealogy traces back to Adam. He is saying in the genealogy, this is the seed that will crush the head of the serpent. The search is over. This is the promised seed. And so Genesis 3.15 is called by many preachers and theologians as the proto-evangelion, the first proclamation of the gospel. The gospel was already proclaimed and promised as early as Genesis 3.15. An offspring that will crush the head of the serpent. But not only the gospel was promised and proclaimed, it was displayed. How was it displayed in our text? Let me read verse 21. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife. He clothed them. You know, remember in, in the first part of Genesis 3, how immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve, they tried to cover their nakedness with fig leaves, right? And I'm not really sure, but I don't think having leaves to cover yourself will do, right? Have you tried covering yourself with leaves? I don't think it will do a good job in covering yourself. It cannot be enough. And so what, what did God do? He clothed them. He clothed them with what? Not with leaves, but skin. You know what that meant? That meant that, was, that there was an animal that was sacrificed to clothe them. Blood was shed to clothe them. And here we see a glimpse of the atonement that the Israelites practice in their lifetime. We have the atonement, the blood, the, the lamb to be, to be sacrificed to cover the sin of the whole community. And ultimately, we see this displayed in Jesus Christ at the cross. His life was the atonement to cover our sin and shame. And remember how 
John the Baptist saw Jesus and he said, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Genesis 3, we see a glimpse of what Christ will do for God's people. His blood was shed to cover our sin and shame. And let me read Matthew, Henry, uh, Matthew Henry's commentary regarding this. And this is, for me, this is beautiful. Adam and Eve made for themselves aprons of fig leaves, a covering too narrow for them to wrap themselves in. And you know what? Such are all the rags of our own righteousness. But God made coats of skin, large, strong, durable, and fit for them. Such is the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in the midst of judgment against evil, God shows his grace by proclaiming the gospel and displaying the gospel. Let me end with this question, and maybe some of you have this question. Pastor, was Adam and Eve saved? Will we see them in heaven? Yes, they bore the consequences of their sin. They faced the righteous judgment of God as they were evicted from Eden. But they placed their hope in the promised seed. The promised seed whose body was bruised but will crush the head of the serpent. The promised seed whose sacrifice covered our shame. And it was through this promised seed that Jesus Christ has revealed in the scripture that Adam and Eve were saved from their misery. It was not because Adam and Eve worked their way back to Eden. It was because the promised seed covered their sin and shame and moved them out of their misery. Now, if you look at the ending of the, the whole Bible, see gen, you see Revelation 22, and it will tell you that the tree of life was once again accessible to those who know that they have nothing but nakedness or sin and shame. But in this misery, they place their trust on the promised seed, Jesus Christ, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. For those who place their trust in Him, they have access to the tree of life. Friends, have you placed your trust in this promised seed? Have you placed your trust in Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we feel the weight of sin, how it marred our relationship with one another, how it distorted our view of work, how it broke our, us being image bearers, we see a glimpse of your grace as well. Lord, we have nothing but nakedness, sin, and shame before you.
but we thank you that you have clothed us in your righteousness and in your hands you strike your son for our good and we place our trust in him may we always put our hope in our sovereign God who causes all things to work together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose for your glory's sake and for our good in Christ's name Amen